Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. I applied for this position back in June, interviewed in August. I think I was approved by OPM for uh, SES certification back in early December of last year. And so my actual first day on the job was the 1st of January, 2023. And so in that three to four month period, I was doing transition with my predecessor, learning about the organization to the extent that you can before starting the, uh, the the job officially. What a lot of people don't realize is most SES positions, they heavily favor that there's a five-page resume format that um, covers both the ECQs and any what's, what's called MTQs, mandatory technical qualifications for a position. And so it's a fixed format. It has very, very specific guidelines. And then in that, you build in how you meet not only the ECQs, but some of the sub-competencies that exist there as well. And so first and foremost, if you're at all considering an SES position, I would highly recommend searching out that five-page resume format and then working from that. And in many cases, a lot of people hire writers to work on these five-page resumes because they're so hyper-specific. And they individually need to be tailored to the position you're applying to, much like every other federal job application that you do. So that was kind of qualifier number one, was getting that five-page resume, making sure I could demonstrate that I could pass the ECQs as well as hit the technical competencies that were required. And then you just kind of apply like everybody else. Uh, I know a lot of people think that SES is all about who you know, but I was a cold applicant off the street. As far as CDC uh, knew, I was, you know, Joe off the street. And so I applied and then there is a review of the resumes by an executive board. And the executive board determines whether or not you have, you meet the criteria to that would potentially pass OPM certification and only those that have the potential get referred to the hiring manager. And so I applied in June, in early August, I got a note that I had exceeded the qualifications by the executive review board. And then I was referred to the hiring manager. About a week and a half later, I had my first interview. It was a, a panel interview and uh, it was daunting to say the least. Being able to have one, to demonstrate core competencies from the ECQ perspective, but also demonstrate that I had the technical prowess and the the right perspective to be an executive was a real challenge. I would later find out that two of the people of the two of the three people on my panel would are peers at other agencies. And so uh, it was like staring down uh, the, the barrel of a very long gun. But uh, I guess it went well because I got in, invited back for a second interview, completed the second interview. And then I was asked to have a conversation with the chief operating officer of the CDC which I did a a few weeks later. And then much like everybody else, I got a tentative job offer that let me know that I'd been tentatively selected. But the difference between the executive side and the GS side is the tentative selection starts the process by which you write your ECQs, you do all these other things. Well, all of your internal approvals have to be done first before they'll ever send your package to OPM, right? And so there were numerous hurdles I'm sure you can appreciate in the federal space. Now, add maybe two or three layers of complexity for the executive side with executive compensation review boards and all these other things that had to be done beforehand. And finally, finally, my ECQs um, were sent to OPM and I got certified on the on the first pass. I will tell you that writing ECQs is no picnic. Plainly put, writing ECQs is almost like uh, taking credit for the entire class's worth of schoolwork when you're in fifth grade. Right. So you cannot mention that you were on a team. You can't mention the contributions of the others that were participating. It's almost like you have to take credit for all of it. And it's really 
um, it, for me, it almost felt disingenuous that I couldn't acknowledge the inputs and the, the the successes of the team, but that's not what it's about. It's very much about you telling your stories on how you meet or exceed the executive core qualifications. And, and it's, it's a really challenging process. In this case, I absolutely hired a writer. Okay. Now the way the writing works with the ECQs, um, you meet with a consultant. I actually had drafts of my ECQs written. So I provided those first. And this is really about telling stories and each ECQ, you want to tell two specific stories about how you meet or, or met or exceeded the core qualifications for the ECQ. So I provided my first draft, the writer read them, and then they came back and they asked me questions. And it was like an interview. They asked me a ton of questions and then they disappear. And then they call me back and say, we got more questions. And they ask you more questions, more questions and more questions. I think we did this probably three or four rounds before I ever saw the first draft, the first true draft of my ECQs. But when it came out, I was actually, frankly, very impressed because the ECQs were written in my own voice. It's really, really disconcerting, right? Honestly, that they've gotten to know me that well in this period of time that they could write as if they were writing from my perspective. And so we refined, we reiterated, we did some things and then we turned them in. But I'll tell you that the process is expensive. Hiring a writer is not cheap. Without quoting numbers, it was definitely in the thousands of dollars. But you know, you're making an investment at that point. You've already been selected for a position. If you don't pass OPM certification, you cannot accept the job. Right. So for me, I had already got selected for the job. This was my dream job. This was the job I wanted. And so paying the money made the most sense in order to expedite the review as also make sure that I didn't uh, risk losing the position. No, I appreciate the detail. I think that level of detail is really important for folks because it's, it is the whole SES application piece until you've gone through it, you haven't gone through it. And so having somebody kind of detail that we could spend a lot more time on, on, on how you got there, but really I want to talk about now that you're there, let's talk about your first year going in. What did you learn? What were some of those uh, top level things that, that, that worked for you? You mentioned you spent the first 90 to 120 days really being more operational. Once you got through that piece, that's when maybe the real, the real quotes here, SES began. First and foremost, I think that the biggest takeaway from my first year as an executive is I can no longer be the smartest person in the the sheer breadth and depth of information that I would have to know in order to be a subject matter expert on all the areas in which are my, my responsibility, one could go crazy trying to be the smartest person in the room on all this. Instead, what I think I learned is that not only am I not the smartest person in the room, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to surround myself with good people that are subject matter experts whom I've developed a bond and trust with that can advise me uh, in order to inform my decision making. And so um, that's probably the first thing, right? You, you cannot, you should not, you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You need to let that go because otherwise you're a mile wide and a mile deep and, and it's just untenable. The other thing I would say is uh, you need to think very strategically at this level. You know, it's easy to get caught in the hyper-tactical, I've got this one problem that I need to solve. Let me, if I just do this one thing and I do that thing, then I can solve that problem. If you're not thinking tact, uh, strategically, that tactical problem, the way you solve it could have negative effects on other aspects across the office, across the agency. In my case, since I'm making decisions at the agency level for, for the cybersecurity of the agency, so thinking strategically is a must. Having good GS-15 branch chiefs or, or direct reports is, is, is another must. One of the questions I'm often asked, and I think this is really good for people to know, is what makes a good GS-15? How do you be a good GS-15 that reports to an SES? How do you help enable an SES as a good as a GS-15? And I'll tell you what I tell people. 
to be a good GS-15, you need to be able to straddle the strategic and the tactical realm simultaneously. You are operationally focused because your job is to implement, but you also need to not lose sight of the strategic because your decisions have the ability to affect others as well. And so being able to be nimble and go back and forth from that operational to strategic is really, really key, as well as understanding how to build and uh, maintain relationships with your peers, partners, and stakeholders, because if not, you'll never be able to appreciate their equities and how your decisions will affect them. So learning to trust my GS-15s, building that bond of trust, understanding their subject matter expertise, um, and then being okay not being the decision maker on everything, pushing decision making down to the lowest level where it's, a pos where it's possible, um, and then trusting people to do a good job and then holding them accountable if they don't. Let's talk a little bit about that first year. So you got your SES or you were received the SES appointment back when, and then let's talk about that the learning curve and, and all the pieces and parts that you've seen over the last year. I applied for this position back in June, interviewed in August. Um, I think I was approved by OPM for uh, SES certification back in early December of last year. And so uh, my actual first day on the job was the 1st of January, 2023. And so um, in that kind of three to four month period, I was doing transition with my predecessor, learning about the organization to the extent that you can before starting the, uh, the, the job officially. Joining and, and becoming a, a new SES, I got to tell you, it's challenging. You spend a, a vast majority of your career being very, very operationally focused, very, very tactically focused, focusing on the mechanics of getting work done. And the senior executive service is not at all operational. Our job is to be the strategic thinkers and to set the strategic direction for organizations. And so coming into a new agency, Coming into a, an agency as a new member of the senior executive service, I was at a great disadvantage because I lacked the understanding of that operational landscape. And so I would say I probably spent the first 90 to 120 days being far more operational than uh, one would expect for an SES. But it really was my benefit by doing that because it helped me learn very, very granularly where our challenge areas were, where are the areas I should be focusing, how do I develop uh, strategies in order to solve that for the agency. Um, it also helped inform an organizational restructuring that we did on October the 1st, understanding at a very granular level the problem sets, I could then think about how do we organize ourselves to facilitate solving some of those, those structural problems. One person, SES or not, is not going to come in and substantially change the, the organization against organizational inertia. So recognizing that organizational inertia is a problem, realizing where you can make your improvements and realizing where your pitfalls are. I think that's, that's like job one figuring out the current state and how, where you can make your improvements. And then also recognizing that we don't have a sphere of control. We have a sphere of influence. I don't control anything. I influence a lot. And so building relationships, establishing trust, being able to meet people where they are, un enabling the business, that has allowed me to help influence things far greater than any positionality title like CISO or authority authority that comes from FISMA, it none, far greater than any of those things is my sphere of influence and ability to build relationships. But and maybe I'm lucky, I, I had dealt far less with some of those kind of, you call them people issues. I mean, I have people issues, we all do, but it's, it's not like, well, this person doesn't like this person or I don't like this person. It's more like, hey, we haven't been able to crack this problem because this group doesn't want to work with this group. And the way you solve that is 
okay, let's all meet in the middle. Let's talk about your equities. Let's talk about my equities. Let's all give a little where nobody wins, but we can at least make iterative progress. And again, going back to this idea of I'm not going to make substantial seismic shifts. I would much rather make small, meaningful, iterative steps that longer term, I, the metaphor I use is this is a big slow ship. And the only way we're going to turn a big slow ship is to make meaningful, iterative improvements that will turn us over time in the direction that we want to go. You talk about you'll need to be the smartest person in the room, mile wide, mile deep, you just go crazy. But how big of a change was that for you? How difficult was that? What did you learn about yourself from that realization that, okay, it's okay if somebody else makes a good decision and it's not my decision, but it's still a good decision. In the military, we call this commander's intent, but really it's about understanding where my intent is and then giving people the freedom to operate within the intent, right? It's like giving them guardrails and being less concerned with the how and more concerned with the what. Hey, I need this problem solved. And if I tell you how to do it, then I've undercut your authority. So that's that's not the best way to do it. It's more, hey, go solve the problem. Come back and tell me when it's done and, and focus less on the how. Was that challenging for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Coming from IT and having a heavy technology background, I pride myself on that technological prowess that I bring to bear by having done this work for so long. But I also recognized very, very quickly how quickly the technology iterates, how quickly my skills fell out of date, and how I would never be able to keep up with the pace given how many different kind of lanes or swim lanes or, or, or technologies that are at play in this space. And then understanding too, that the vast majority of my job has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with leadership and strategic management and priority setting and being able to manage resources and deliver on, on strategic priorities. And so it was absolutely challenging for me, but I think I made that, that realization as a GS 14, right? Not as a GS 15 or an SES. I made that realization when I gave up my admin rights, when I became a branch supervisor for the first time. I recognized that I was not going to be the guy doing the work. I needed to be able to trust the people that were going to do the work. And every level that I ascended through the organization, that proportion changed even more. A couple other things I just want to hit upon. Number one is the mentor. I think that's a really important piece that I've heard around for any manager. Find someone who can help you understand. How did you find a mentor? Talk a little bit about that relationship that you had. I did not appreciate the value of a mentor until I went seeking one and didn't find one. As a GS-15, I knew I had SES aspirations. I knew that my job at Energy was to be, in my mind, my last GS-15 job. I wanted my next role after that to be an SES role. And I inquired with several people about establishing a mentor-like relationship, and, and it didn't really go anywhere. And that's when I realized just how important that was going to be. All of the things that we talked about very early on about ECQs and understanding the process, a mentor is the person that can help clarify that for you and help make sure that you're ready for that. And I didn't have that. But when I joined this agency, two of the people on my panel ended up being industry peers uh, from other federal agencies. And one of those two, he reached out to me on something completely separate. We got along really, really well. Uh, I set up a meeting with him and I basically just asked him, I said, listen, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. I could benefit from your wisdom and the lessons learned that you have. Would you consider mentoring me in this role? And at that point now, we're industry peers. We're both SES. We're both CISOs. And he was so humbled that I asked that he accepted. And we meet every other week. It, and honestly, it's it, the joke is we're no longer in mentor sessions. We're in collaboration sessions because there's now a bi-directional flow of information that is helpful for both of us. And so, but that mentor role is so vitally important because there are things... I, 
it is lonely up at the top. Plainly put, the circle of people of the, which I can truly be 100% honest about the, tra- the challenges I faced is extremely small right? I'm not going to go to my boss and complain. I'm not going to go to her deputy and complain. I'm not going to complain to my deputy or my staff because that is completely a possibility. And so to whom do you talk? Who do you share these struggles with? Well, you share them with a mentor and you say, you know, I remember very famously being like, hey, you know, mentor, I've got this problem and I've got, you know, I, I just wish this other person would do this thing and then that would be okay. And he hard stopped me. He says, Joe, that's a you problem. That's not a them problem. And when you take a step back and you look at it, like I needed somebody to tell me that otherwise I was never going to get past it. So yeah, absolutely. Get, get a mentor, get a good mentor. Cause there, there's nothing worse than getting a bad mentor. What advice would you give to folks who are considering applying for SES roles? First and foremost, be honest with yourself. Do you have the capacity, the capabilities uh, to, to do the job? And remember SES is a billet. It's not a job. You got to think about what's the job you want. And can you reasonably do that job? I think that we lack self-objectivity a lot of times. Um, and so really being brutally honest with yourself, I did not apply to an SES position two years before I started when asked to apply because I didn't think I was ready. So I think have that hard conversation with yourself, part one. Part two, be prepared to one, spend the money to do it the right way, hire the writer, get the resume, hire the writer, get the ECQs. But three, recognize that in some agencies, there are pre-selections. People know who's going to get that job. And much like every other federal position, you may apply and never hear anything ever again. And so um, it can be a little demoralizing and it can be uh, desensitizing, but uh, perseverance is key. And the last thing I'll say is this, do it for the right reason. Don't join the SES because you want a paycheck increase. Don't join the SES because you get to tell people what to do. Don't, don't apply for SES jobs because you think that it's going to look good on a civilian resume in a few years. Do it because you believe in the mission, believe in the organization, or like for me, do it because you want to make people's lives better. You do it because you, your sphere of influence grows and you have the ability to make life better for more people. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard so I like to call it our North Star. Having a people first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.